Christmas a lot, but the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Oh, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be perhaps that his shoes were too tight. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. I must stop Christmas from coming. But how? Then he got an idea. An awful idea. The Grinch got a wonderful, awful idea. I know just what to do. The Grinch laughed in his throat. I'll make a quick Santa Claus hat and a coat. He chuckled and clucked. What a great Grinchy trick. With this coat and this hat, I'll look just like Saint Nick. All I need is a reindeer. The Grinch looked around, but since reindeer are scarce, there was none to be found. Did that stop the Grinch? <laughs> the Grinch simply said, If I can't find a reindeer, I'll make one instead. All their windows were dark. No one knew he was there. All the Who's were all dreaming sweet dreams without care. When he came to the first little house on the square, this is stop number one. The old Grinchy Claws hissed as he climbed to the roof, empty bags in his fist. Then he slid down the chimney, a rather tight pinch. But if Santa could do it then, so could the Grinch. He got stuck only once, for a minute or two. Then he stuck his head out of the fireplace flue where the little who stockings hung all in a row. These stockings, he grinched, are the first things to go. Then he slithered and slunk with a smile most unpleasant around the whole room and he took every present. Popguns, pampoonas, pantoufas and drums, checkerboards, bistlebinks, popcorn and plums. Then he stuffed them in bags. Then the crimp very nimbly stuffed all the bags one by one up the chimney. to the Who's, he was grinchily humming. They're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up. I know just what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two. Then the Who's down in Whoville will all cry, Boo-Hoo. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. He paused, and the Grinch put a hand to his ear. 
and he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in low, then it started to grow. Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. And now that his heart didn't feel quite so tight, he whizzed with his load through the bright morning light. With a smile in his soul, he descended Mount Crumpet, cheerily blowing hoo-hoo on his trumpet. Rolled into Whoville, he brought back their toys. He brought back their floof to the Who girls and boys. He brought back their snoof and their tringlers and fuzzles. Brought back their pantukas, their dafflers and wuzzles. He brought everything back, all the food for the feast. Christmas Day will always be just as long as we have we. Welcome Christmas while we stand, heart to heart and hand in Mr. Grinch, you're a mean one. Let me ask you a question. How many of you remember the live-action movie with Jim Carrey from 2000 that came out? You remember seeing that? Let me tell you why we didn't use that one. It freaks me out. <laughs> Jim Carrey was just a little too Grinchish for me personally. So we went back to the original, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, for this second and last installment of At the Movies here at Lake Hills Church. Now, for some people not in this room, it, it might, I think it would serve us well maybe to remember Jesus' command to, to adopt the faith of a child, to, to remember that we should never adopt so much spiritual smugness or arrogance to think that we're above learning something from anyone about who God is and, and how God operates. But just in case you ever share this with somebody else who maybe has that kind of smugness, help them to understand that Dr. Seuss was much, much more than just an author of children's books. We know, of course, that Dr. Seuss was actually Theodore Seuss Geisel. He published in his lifetime more than 60 different books, including How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Now, 60 books getting published, that's an amazing number in and of itself. But let me just tack on a little statistic that will absolutely knock your socks off. Dr. Seuss's books have more than 600 million copies in print. 600 million 
copies. Well, let me just put that into context. J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter can't even see Dr. Seuss's taillights. He's so far ahead of them. 600 million. He won the Pulitzer Prize in his lifetime. He was educated at Dartmouth College and studied at Oxford in England. This was a, an intellectual giant who published all of these amazing children's books. But his story, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, has become synonymous with Christmas criminals. He is one of the icons of Christmas villains all time, right up there with Scrooge from A Christmas Carol or Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. The Grinch, just the very word itself, the Grinch. Tell your neighbor right now, kind of smile at him when you say it, but say, don't be no Grinch. Just, just the word kind of, kind of indicates somebody who's stealing or has never had the joy of Christmas really and truly down in his bones or down in her bones. But the Grinch is this amazing reminder of what Christmas is all about. It's this incredible reminder that we have to really and truly make sure that we are deliberate and intentional that we don't lose Christmas in Christmas. How many of you know, not from personal experience certainly, but you've heard of people who can lose Christmas in Christmas? Let me just see a show of hands if you've heard of this dynamic. Thank you. Again, this is not us, of course, but we know people. We've seen it on TV and we've read books. And the fact of the matter is that this is true for all of our celebrations. It can be very, very easy for us to forget the function of the festivities and to lose the symbolism of our celebration, when in reality, that's what the festivities and the celebration ought to be all about, is what we honor, what we remember. And it's not just, it's not just at Christmas that we can do these things. It can happen at any celebration, anywhere, at any time. I had a conversation recently with a professional event planner. We were at a gathering together, and Julie and I were talking with this woman who, she, she goes around the country and does these incredible corporate events all the way down to like small intimate weddings and, and everything in between. And when I found out that she was a part of wedding planning, I thought, man, this is something we kind of share in common. As a pastor, you know, we marry them, we bury them, we do all those kind of things. And so we started kind of comparing notes on weddings. And that was a fascinating conversation. I just asked her, I said, don't you think it's interesting what you can learn about people at a wedding and the the family dynamics that come to the surface at a wedding. Again, how many of you have ever heard about family dynamics at a wedding? Thank you very much. Yes, hands are going up everywhere. As we began, she said, "Mac, you wouldn't believe this." She said, "This just happened to me just a couple of, just recently." She said, "I had this bride absolutely lose her mind because we had the place cards that, that indicated the number of tables at the reception where everybody was going to be seating, sitting, and they were the wrong color. And this bridezilla went absolutely ballistic because of the color of the cards at the table. I said, man, believe me, I have been there, done that, and got the t-shirt. I understand. Feel your pain. And, and, and listen, let me, let me be quick to tell you, I absolutely concede I understand that I don't understand the significance of the vibe for the bride. I, I know that. I, I know that that's just not part of how I'm wired up, and I understand that. But isn't it just possible? Can't we just put this out there on a Sunday morning at Lake Hills Church that 
a DEFCON 5 meltdown over the color of cards on the number of the table might be, just might be, missing the ultimate significance of a wedding. I'm just axing for a friend. Would somebody please help me preach? Is that even remotely possible? Okay, thank you. I thought so. I thought it might be. That was kind of rhetorical hashtag. But Christmas especially, and I think it's interesting as you study the Grinch that stole Christmas, you, you start to understand, as a matter of fact, Dr. Seuss himself affirmed that the story of the Grinch was more autobiography than it was allegory. He, he said that this actually came out of an event from his own life. And, and let me just read to you just a quick line from the book itself that the movie was taken from. This is what Seuss wrote. He said, and the more the Grinch thought of this who Christmas sing, the more the Grinch thought, I must stop this whole thing. Why, for 53 years, I've put up with it now. I must stop this Christmas from coming, but how? Now, that's an odd thing. For 53 years, I've put up with this, th- this thing now until you understand that Dr. Seuss wrote this book when he himself was 53 years old. In 1957, the year after the book was published, he said this to a reporter. He said, I was brushing my teeth on the morning of the 26th of last December when I noticed a very Grinchish countenance in the mirror. It was Seuss. And so I wrote about my sour friend, the Grinch, to see if I could rediscover something about Christmas that obviously I'd lost. Dr. Seuss lost Christmas in Christmas. The story of the Grinch is a reminder that we have to be deliberate. We have to be intentional to not lose Christmas in Christmas. Let me just ask you by a show of hands, how many of you right now have finished all Christmas shopping? Let me see a show of hands. If you have finished, go ahead and hold your hands. Get your hands up high, high. You all are role models to the rest of us spiritual leaders and towering giants. Wait a minute, keep your hands up. If you finish your shopping, here's what's really interesting. We admire you, and yet there's part of us that doesn't like you. (laughs) I I, I don't know how else to say it. We love you with the love of the Lord, but it's hard to like people who have it that together. You have an added advantage. You've got an extra jump to not lose the Christmas in Christmas. Now, the Grinch is the Grinch, of course, but the Grinch is hardly the first Grinch in human history. As a matter of fact, if you go to the original source on the life of Jesus himself, there was a Grinch who lived 2,000 years before Theodore Seuss Geisel wrote How the Grinch Stole Christmas. If you've got your Bibles, look in Matthew chapter number 2. Matthew Chapter 2, and as you're looking that up, whether it's on your phone or in your actual book Bible, remember that each of the Gospels, those four accounts that open the New Testament that tell us the life of Christ, each of them has a different perspective. They complement one another and complete each other in the picture they present of Jesus. Mark, Luke, and John follow Matthew, and we, we learned last week that most of the details surrounding the actual birth of Jesus we get from Luke chapter number 2. But Matthew chapter number 2 helps to kind of fill in some of the blanks with other parts of the story. 
Matthew chapter 2 tells us about the lineage and, and the ancestry of Jesus, but then it kind of goes real quickly over the birth and gets into the toddlerhood of Jesus. And as you read the entire book of Matthew, Matthew writes from a decidedly Jewish perspective for a noticeably Jewish audience. Throughout the book of Matthew, he elevates and accentuates the kingship of Jesus, this, this Messiah, the promised one of Israel. He speaks over and over again about the prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus that date back centuries before he walked the face of the earth. And in Matthew chapter 2, there is a unique account of Jesus' birth and the immediate aftermath in Judea, where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Judea would be kind of the region, either the kind of the county or state. Bethlehem was the actual town, as we talked about last week. It's a small little town there that where Jesus was born because Mary and Joseph had gone back there to be counted in the Roman census because that was where Joseph's family had come from. But in Matthew chapter 2, the Bible goes into some more detail and introduces us to the very first Grinch who tried to steal Christmas. Check this out in Matthew chapter number 2. The Bible says this in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, King Herod and the Magi are prominent figures in the birth account of Jesus. But it's important for us to understand who they are in order to understand the significance of this moment. First of all, let's talk about King Herod. Herod was a fascinating guy. He was born a Palestinian. His father had been an Edomite, which means he traced his descendants or his heritage all the way back to Esau of Jacob and Esau. So this was the family that King Herod the Great came out of. He was installed as the governor of Judea by the Roman Empire, specifically Mark Antony, in Rome, arguing on his behalf before the Roman Senate. And when Antony won his appointment to become governor of this area, King Herod was named at that time literally King of the Jews. That's going to come back to haunt him in a little bit. But before we get there, Herod has one job in the world, and that is to keep Rome happy. As long as he keeps Rome happy, he can do whatever he wants to in this area known as Judea, of which Jerusalem and Bethlehem are a part. And so Herod goes to great lengths to keep Rome happy. He starts these amazing building projects. He builds an entire city there on the coast just north of Tel Aviv. He builds incredible fortresses at Masada. He has a home in Jericho and a home in Jerusalem. He is living large, keeping Rome happy. But in order to keep Rome happy, he needs to keep Jerusalem and the Jews happy. And so Herod undertakes an, a massive expansion of the temple in Jerusalem so that the Jews will stay happy. But 
it, it wasn't enough because all of Herod's building projects that he accomplished and, and completed throughout his lifetime, he did on the backs of slave labor. This is how the Jewish Encyclopedia describes King Herod the Great. It says, quote, he was of commanding presence. He excelled in physical exercises. He was a skillful diplomatist, and above all, he was prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition. This was not a nice guy. This was the guy that Rome installed just to keep the peace whatever it took. And he was willing to do whatever it took in order to keep the peace. And so it's against this backdrop that the magi, the the wise men, show up following this star all the way from Persia where they resided to worship Jesus. Now, the magi, again, we've seen them in in the nativity scenes. I want to ask you a trivia question here and just yell out whatever you think the answer is. How many magi came to Bethlehem to worship Jesus? How many? That's mumbling it out. Yell it out. How many? Three, 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 three. Here, three, here. Go here, four. No. We don't know. Trick question. Sorry. Seminary trick. We don't know. Most people assume that there were three because the Bible says that they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And there you go. There's your three. But we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know that the Magi were astrologers in Persia. We, We know that these were the the super, super academics of that day. They, they were kind of a, a cross between professors and magicians, and they found these things in astrology. This would have been like, you know, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and Elon Musk showing up in Bethlehem to worship. And so they, they come to ask, and they're like, where's this king of the Jews? And Herod's like, oh, no, you didn't. I'm sorry, what? King of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. What what do you mean, king of the Jews? And so all of a sudden, Herod starts to panic. He's like, whoa, whoa, the the kingdom is at risk. My my reign and my rule is in jeopardy. we got to do something about this. And so Herod concocts this plan. He he doesn't know who they're talking about, but he's panicked nonetheless. Kind of like Christmas holidays. This is what he says in verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. This was his ploy. He said, If I can't find him, surely these wise men, the Magi, will help me identify this king of the Jews born that is a threat to my rule and to my reign. And, and, and it's in that fear, it's in that anxiety that we have an incredible insight into Grinchdom, into, into what it looks like to be a Grinch and to lose the Christmas of Christmas. Because you see, Herod was absolutely committed to remaining on the throne, not just that Rome had assigned to him. But he was committed to doing whatever it took to stay on the throne of his life. That he would be large and in charge. That he would be the man. And I have to say in total candor, I get it. I've 
wrestle with that same thing myself. You know, many of you know that Julie and I have been married for 26 years. And and over that time, there have been a few times where Julie has wanted something that I didn't want. Or maybe Julie didn't want something that I did want. And there, there, was, some, there was this struggle in my, inside of me that said, I need to get what I want. Has anybody else ever struggled with that? Or maybe heard of people who struggle with that? And over time, don't you, you kind of learn how to maneuver, how to, how to scheme and, and, and get your way. For me, it happened one time about 18 years ago. I'll never forget it. That was a joke. I'm just kidding. But let me just say this to the men of the house. Our wives see us coming from two miles away. Don't think that you're going to pull the wool over your wife's eyes. It's not going to happen. They're smarter than we are. I just need you to understand that. I'm trying to help a brother out. By the same token, men, how many of you have ever found yourself doing something that your wife wanted you to do that you didn't want to do, and you don't know how you got there? Has anybody else ever experienced that sensation? I'm just like, it's mind-boggling. And I I just, after 26 years, you just kind of go, well, she got me again. (laughs) Here we are. But it's that, it's that struggle to stay on the throne of our lives. It, it's, it's that same thing that, that Sue says about the Grinch, that the biggest problem of all was that his heart was two sizes too small. You see, our heart shrinks two sizes too small when we seek to put ourselves above all. If we can kind of sucify this spiritual principle here, the reality is we all understand that. We all know what it's like to want to get our own way. And that actually is the whole reason Matthew 2, Luke 2, that's really the whole story of Scripture is God rescuing us from ourselves. It is God giving us an escape hatch in the form of Jesus Christ so that we begin to to relinquish our our white-knuckle grip on the throne of our lives and and not only just kind of let it go, but actually invite Christ to sit on that throne. And we invite him to sit there and to be celebrated as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to acknowledge the fact that he is God and I am not because I don't want that kind of pressure in my life. It, it, it comes down to who or what we worship. And who or what we worship determines the size of our heart. You place your heart and your mind and your life on an eternal, infinite, perfect God and your heart will never ever quit growing. Your mind will never ever quit expanding and developing and learning. But by the same token, if you place your heart and your mind and your life on anyone or anything else other than God, by definition, your heart, your mind, your life is limited. Now, 
a lot of people may kind of push back on that and be like, hey, 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 whoa, whoa, I'm, I'm just kind of checking out the God thing. I'm kicking the tires. And I don't, I don't worship anything. And that, that, I get what you're saying. But the fact of the matter is, if you, or if I, if, if I am determining the course of my life, the direction, and every step, then by definition, I am functioning as God, little g. And if I'm functioning as a little g God in my life, then that means that I'm worshiping and I'm, I'm focused with everything that I have on every part of my life because we are created as worshipers. The Bible says that God has placed eternity in the heart of man and of humanity. That there's something inside of us that says, this is not the center of the universe. There's something inside of us that says, there is someone, there's something bigger than myself. There's a cause, there is a reason out there beyond just what I can see. And that something is God. We're created with this God-shaped hole in our lives that if we try to fill with anything else, nothing else can sustain the weight of a life. No one else can sustain the weight of our lives. We can't sustain the weight of our lives on our own. It is God and God alone who can sustain that. If you put another person in that place, whether it be a a loved one, a a spouse, or somebody you're dating, or, or maybe your children... You're, you're putting on them more than they were created to bear. They, they can't sustain the weight of your life and their lives. and other. That's not their job. That's what God does. It is God and God alone who is great and great enough to sustain the weight of our lives and the worth of our worship. To understand that, that He is God and we're not and we will worship Him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That is the essence of what Christmas is all about. That's how we never, ever, ever forget the function of our festivities. We, we don't lose sight of the significance of the symbolism, and we, we celebrate those symbols and those significant festivities because of what they represent. And so when that happens, then we just kind of, Make sure that we're doing what we need to do to celebrate in a way that is and remains worship. Now, Herod wasn't quite done yet. The Bible says that when the wise men, the magi, saw the star, they were overjoyed, and on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape, escape to Egypt, kind of south and west of here. Go to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So the Magi come to worship. They they worship Jesus. They bring these gifts as worship. And then God warns them to go home by another route. And at about the same time, God is warning Joseph, this earthly father of the Son of God, this 
soon to be husband to Mary. Probably by this time they are married. And he says, you need to take the child and Mary and go to Egypt. It's funny, Joseph's going to Egypt. I've, I've read that somewhere else before. Oh yeah, that's right. Back Genesis, like 1,600 years before. I mean, Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers, and the wagon train that bought him took him to Egypt, and it was there in Egypt that he kind of rose up through the ranks and became the second in command only behind Pharaoh himself and orchestrated the survival of Egypt through a famine, and it was during that famine that Joseph's brothers came to Egypt looking for grain because they had heard that somebody was had stored up enough during the years of plenty. And his brothers, who became the tribes of Israel, were spared and sustained through the famine because of what Joseph gave them. That, that's Egypt. And now Joseph, the father of Jesus, earthly father, takes Jesus and Mary to Egypt to be protected from this King Herod who feels threatened, who feels vulnerable because of the rumor of this birth of a child. Verse, six, verse 16, Matthew chapter 2 goes on and says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. So about this time, Herod says, I'm going to eliminate any potential threat. And he orders all boys, two years old and under, to be executed. Verse 17, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah. Ramah is, is that area around Bethlehem and in Judea. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel, Rachel is weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel, who, who was essentially the mother of Israel, weeping for her children. 15, 1,600 years before Jesus was born. But then the prophet, Jeremiah, wrote these words 650 years before Jesus was born, about 1,000 years after Rachel lived. And you see all of a sudden God weaving together these threads, this narrative of history these facts that come together all of a sudden in the fullness of time at the exact right place, at the only moment where Israel and Rome could have intersected politically. And it was Israel and Rome that ultimately conspired to crucify Christ. It's like, there's no way 
There's, there has never been a human being ever, not the Magi, not Elon Musk, not Stephen Hawking, not anybody who could have orchestrated these events. The, this, this story, these facts, had to have been formulated by somebody who had a plan beyond our own. The Lord says, your ways are not my ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts. And he did this in order to give us Christmas, to give us Emmanuel, God with us. I asked you earlier in the service, I said, how many of you have finished shopping? And a few people raised their hand very humbly. If you haven't finished your shopping, if you're stressed about the family that's coming to town in a few days, or maybe is already here, it's a long time, I'm just saying. Whatever the situation, you don't have to lose the Christmas of Christmas. It comes back to who we worship. It comes back to being still and knowing that he is God. That he is God and I am not. And I will make sure that I'm not trying to white knuckle the throne of my life, but I will relinquish it. And I will celebrate this same Jesus. This same Jesus who was born the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This same Jesus who rose from the dead to give us salvation. That we might be forgiven of our sins and live in a relationship with God and experience eternal life that begins right here and right now. This is Christmas. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. And in this moment, I want to just invite you to answer a question. And the question is this. Have I bowed the knee to Jesus? Have I bowed my knee like the Magi and worshipped Jesus acknowledged him as the king of kings of my life and surrendered my life to him see the, the fact of the matter is folks, that we're either Magi or we're Herod. We're either bowing our knee or we're grasping the throne of our lives. If you're here today and you want to bow the knee, I want to ask you to put every distraction out of your mind and just take this opportunity to do that, to step into a relationship with God just to pray right where you're sitting. In your own words, something like this. Just silently talk to God and say, Jesus, 
I need you. I give you my life. I will follow you from this moment forward. You are God and I am not. I confess my sin to you. I claim your forgiveness. And I will follow you from this moment forward. I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed for a moment. But for those of you who just prayed that prayer for the first time in your life, I want to make sure that you understand this is the most important moment of your life. And as a church family, we want to help what comes next. We want to help you grow from this moment. We want to be that family of faith with you. And so I want to ask you to do just a couple of things before we dismiss in a moment. If you would right now, just take your program that you got when you came in and open it up there to the connect card. If you would begin filling that out, just fill it out with your name and contact information. We always keep that in-house. But then about halfway down, you'll notice there's a place there to indicate I'm committing my life to Christ this week. And, And that card begins a process. A process of partnering together and participating in this this thing called faith with the family of faith. And it's a process that proceeds at a pace that works for you, but that's where it starts. If you'll fill that out and tear it off at the perforation along that fold, and before you leave today, just hand it to one of our ushers or maybe somebody underneath the blue awning, the little canopy thing out here under the big tent. But number two, as we remain in a spirit of prayer for just another moment, if that was your prayer, would you just raise your hand? Raise your hand and hold it high over your head for just a brief moment. Your raised hand is just your way of stamping this moment in your life and stamping it into the life of this church because for us, there's nothing more important than this moment right now. Nothing. It's why we exist as a church. And so as a family of faith with you and around you, as you put your hands down, we like to put our hands together just to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home. 